Welcome to The Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Brett. Happy Thanksgiving. Well, it's after Thanksgiving, so is yeah. it really okay to say happy Thanksgiving? I mean, oh, it's I think past. so. Because I haven't seen you since Thanksgiving. How sad for you. <laughs> it was very sad yeah. for me. I'm still full. You're still full? Yeah. All right. Nice. nice. All the well, plants I could eat and yet. I'm and full. full of thanks. Well, always. Yes, yes, exactly. All right, let's get to our guest. All right, we have a special guest today, Hunter Grasso. Hunter, Is that how you pronounce it, by the way? You butchered the last guest's name, so let's man, make sure that we're doing it right. This one I previewed. I usually yeah. check before, yeah, but good. this time I... Yeah, uh, okay. All right, yeah. just sorry. I've learned. I've let's learned start over. Mistake. Rewind, start over. Here we go. Hi, Brett. No, just kidding. All right, Hunter. Hunter joined Bast Amron as an associate just in August of this year. He's been with the firm only a few months, but he's made an impact immediately. Oh, wow. His Thank practice you. concentrates in the area of bankruptcy and He didn't solvency. say positive impact. So oh, that's true. Just, Good point. He just said impact. Impact, Fair yes. Yeah. So he's a bankruptcy, insolvency, and commercial litigation attorney. Prior to joining our firm, he practiced in the Miami office of a national firm where he gained litigation experience representing primarily developers and general contractors in uh, commercial disputes. He also served as a judicial extern to two of our local bankruptcy judges, Judge Honorable A.J. Crystal and the Honorable Laurel M. Isikoff, who is our chief bankruptcy judge. And Hunter got a JD from University of Miami, where he graduated with honors, which is more than probably you and I can no, say. No, oh, I, no. I, did you also yeah, graduate I, with I, honors? I All right, excellent. So, All right. Yeah. Welcome, Hunter. We're Thank happy you. to have yeah. you. Thank you for having me. Welcome, Hunter. So why don't we jump into the externship? Because, uh, What's the difference between an externship and an internship? So let's start there. So an externship, you get class credit. Internship, you just get to put it on your resume. Nice. Okay. So you got credit, but how did you come to be an extern for two different bankruptcy judges? Like why a bankruptcy judge? So it started during my summer internship at a law firm here in Miami. I got to go observe chapter 13 day one day while I was at work and seemed like a really interesting practice. I didn't know anything about bankruptcy going into it. So I got a bit of a primer before I went, so I knew what to expect. And I thought it'd be really interesting to learn more. And I thought the best way to do that would be to work for a judge. So I reached out, I applied, and ended up getting the position. What about it was interesting to you? It was just unlike anything I'd experienced up to that point. I mean, I was just through my first year of law school, so Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that I had a ton of experience in a different areas of law, but it just caught my attention for whatever reason. And chapter 13 day in particular, it's very hectic. It's very fast paced and and that caught my eye. Anything in particular about any of the issues, the fact that obviously chapter 13 is individual. So there are people there that are obviously impacted, right? Positively, negatively, what's going on. Anything that stands out to you other than, wow, this is really cool? At that point, no. That mm-hmm. came a bit later just when I started sitting in on all the different hearings that the judge would have, paying hearing notes, and things mm-hmm. like that. That's when I sort of got a much better understanding of what bankruptcy right. actually consisted of. The mm-hmm. Chapter 11, Chapter 7, Chapter 13. So it took a bit of time, but that initial impression was enough to at least get me interested. Right. Now, were you leaning a certain way before that experience, before that Chapter 13 day? No, I, I really didn't know what type of law I wanted to do. I was sort of in the process of figuring that out. And right. 
that day sort of just came and so for a listener out there who has no idea what chapter 13 day is like can you just give us a little description of what that experience was the way it was described to me going into it is it's like a an auction house almost <laughs> just people just coming up speaking quickly pass have an argument reserved for the judge just ton of moving parts, ton of different people coming up, people covering for other people, just a bunch of things going on at once. More of a stock exchange almost. Right. Yeah. Right. So the trustee runs the first part of the calendar, right? So what you're talking about is the trustee runs the first part of the calendar and calls each case. And to the extent that there is an issue that can't be resolved, right? Then they wait for the, push it onto the judge's calendar and then the judge comes out. Right. Right. And it takes, usually chapter 13 calendars take a considerable amount of time. Right. No, I was going to say, did you sit in on the first part? The whole where, thing. The whole thing. So where the trustee is calling everybody up more like an auction, but it's not, right? I mean, it's just discussing the issues in each particular matter and seeing if they can resolve them without having to go to the judge. Right. And that was attractive to you. I like that. I know. Yeah, it's a little, well, it's, it might be intimidating to a lot of people. It's a little chaotic and yeah. it's not, right. uh, so some people might be deterred by that experience, but I like that you were encouraged by it. Right. Yeah. It's just something different. I tend to gravitate towards things that just at first blush are interesting for one reason or another. And that was just one of those things. Uh, what else is uh, of interest to you at first blush? No, I'm just, <laughs> I don't know that we want to get into that on this podcast. So you did the two externships and you ended up going a different route initially before coming to our firm. Tell us what that was like and practicing representing some developers and general contractors. That was a, a really interesting experience. I didn't know anything about construction law going into it. I had an opportunity to work at the firm second semester of my last year of law school, and mm-hmm. it turned into a full-time position when I graduated. And I pretty much just had to start from scratch, learn not only the practice of law, but that specific practice area. Mm-hmm. And Worked on a lot of interesting matters, some local, some all over the country. I had one case in Arizona that I was working on a ton, but it was very interesting. You get to do site visits if it's a local building right. for construction defect claims like that. You get to actually go in with your experts and inspect the property, the issue areas and things like that. So it was definitely really interesting. When you say that you had to learn from scratch, which I understand, right? A first-year lawyer coming out and practicing, you've never practiced You may have not have taken any classes in construction litigation or interned, right, Right. for an extended period of time. So what did you have to do in order to get yourself to the point where you felt more comfortable day after day in the practice of construction litigation? I think it was sort of a a natural process just through researching different issues, having to write about different issues. You need to educate yourself in the process of Mm -hmm. doing that and just with the variety of assignments that I had and things I was doing, I sort of just learned more and more and it compounded over time. And the firm I was at did a really good job of sort of teaching at least once a month. There was some type of seminar on lien law or bonds or Mm -hmm. other construction specific issues. So I sort of just learned through that process over time. Had you always had an interest, not always, but ever since your externships, were you always looking for bankruptcy? Is that what led you to us? Yeah, I mean, that's... Always been my end goal. I always wanted to practice in the bankruptcy sphere, for lack of a better phrase. And I saw the opportunity present itself. I had known Brett from when I first started law school. Mm -hmm. And I knew I'd 
regret it if I didn't pursue an opportunity in the practice area that I've been interested in for so long. Right. So your advice to young lawyers who have an interest in a particular practice area, wait it out. Yeah, I mean, it's not too late. I mean, be I patient. Think a lot, yeah, be patient. Right. Patience. Right. Because exactly what you want to do isn't always going to be what you start doing. Right. And it took me a long time to realize that, but in the end it worked out and I just stayed patient. I worked right. really hard at what I was doing, got good at what I was doing. Yeah. And then the opportunity presented itself and I went for it. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of lawyers who graduate from law school have a lot of student loan debt, want to get a job, they're desperate and they feel there's pressure. I mean, there's financial, economic, peer pressure. There's so many pressures to go out and get a job that I think a lot of lawyers or young law students, recent grads, have a tendency to take the first thing that comes along. And if you wait, if you're able to wait, you may be able to find the opportunity that you're looking for. I think it depends on the market at the time too, right? Yeah, I mean, of course. Yeah, obviously, sure. everyone's personal circumstances, but also the market at the time, right? I mean, right. there's a cycle and sometimes sure. there's a really good hiring market and sometimes there's not a really good hiring market and sometimes it is practice specific. Right. If you want to do M&A in 2009, right. you probably are a private equity, you probably right. would not going to be able to find a job right away in your desired practice area. Right. And so maybe some of those lawyers went into bankruptcy practice and they're at a bigger firm or they had the ability to move. Then as the market changed from 09 through 10, 11, 12 onward, right, they may have shifted gears and gone in back into M&A or gone to M&A as the market required. But Hunter is a good example of, even though you took another job in an area that wasn't your desired area, you still kept an eye open for opportunities. And then when you saw when you seized it. Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, and I think it's also a lesson that even if you're in an area that wasn't your, at least your initial desire to go into, you have to take the time to learn and to be good at what you're doing, right? That's because you care. You care to put forth enough effort to, to handle yourself, handle the clients, handle the issues. And you've got to take, as you're a younger lawyer learning, you've got to do double time almost. Right. And not all that time is billable to a client. And that's got to be okay. And you just have to understand that. I sort of took the approach of not, oh, I'm interested in bankruptcy. I'm a bankruptcy lawyer. I'm mm-hmm. I'm not going to do this construction thing forever. I got myself in the mindset of, okay, I'm a construction lawyer now. How do I get really good at being a construction lawyer? And then, like we talked about, the bankruptcy opportunity came up later down the line, but at no point was it, well, I'm not going to be doing this, so I'm not going to invest everything I have into it. Right. Yeah. Whatever it is you're doing, do the best you can and learn as much as you can and grow as much as you can. And I think the tools you learn there in that practice, you'll find will be fruitful or helpful to your practice in in insolvency and commercial litigation as well. Right. And it actually, it has already because some of the cases I've been working on have Mm -hmm. been construction-related bankruptcy issues involving lien law lien and, right, and, right. and things. Lawsuits. So I already had that foundation for that going into it. And it was a very easy transition, at least on that particular matter. And when you started, you started during the height of COVID, right? In 2020? About just after. Right. It was sort of tapering off, but mm-hmm. still very, very present. And so I remember when you started here, in 2022, in August, I remember the first day or first week or whatever, the office was kind of a little barren as far as I was concerned, given my experience and everything. 
And I came to you and I said, the office is not usually this empty. <laughs> and you looked at me and you said, yeah, I started like basically during COVID. So, and I was working at home, so don't worry about it. It's all good. Yeah. So tell me about that transition talk about that. I mean, I don't want to go back to COVID, but talk about that transition as starting your career when offices were not really open or people weren't really working in the office and seeing now a little bit of a shift towards, you know, coming back. It's an interesting experience because as a first year attorney, I think the FaceTime is really important. It's really useful. It's a lot easier to just pop over to someone's office and ask a quick question than it is to write an email about it, Mm -hmm. send a text, a, a team's message, whatever it is. So starting out, it was something that took a bit of getting used to. Over time, it just became normal, I guess, for lack of a a better word. And then coming here where the office is full all the time, in a sense, starting over at a new place was similar to just starting. So it was good Mm -hmm. to have that FaceTime with everyone. You get to get to know everyone, different personalities, Mm -hmm. different work styles, everything. So being in the office and having everyone be in the office was useful for me starting this new adventure. Let me ask you, just capitalizing on something you just said, the idea of asking a question, you know, sending an email, definitely harder than walking down the hallway. Do you think there are times when a question would go unasked just because of that tiny little additional hurdle? A question that if you're working remote, you might not ask, but if you're in person and Brett walked by, you would ask him. I think so. At least for me, I mean, there's definitely times where I have a question. It might not be something that's important. Right. But I want to ask it just out of either curiosity or whatever it may be. And a lot of the time, that just simple question that I was curious about stems into a discussion about a something much else, larger right? detail right. that actually does prove to be significant. But there are definitely times where if I wasn't here and didn't sort of just have that, eh, let me just ask real quick. I wouldn't right. take the time to write an email or send a message to ask because it's just not, I guess, not important to me right. at that yeah. time. So I think that's one of the things, you know, we've had this conversation about remote, in-person, hybrid, and it tends to focus on the learning side of for junior lawyers. But I think the substantive side is also important. Like there are questions. I imagine that, you know, I hadn't really thought of that scenario where you have a question, you're a young lawyer. I think a lot of younger people have a harder time asking a question to begin with. But if you add another hurdle of distance or remote, environment to that is even harder. Now you have a whole analysis of, is this worthy of a question? Is this worth me calling Brett in his remote office or whatever it is, you know, wherever you are, wherever he is. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I hadn't thought of that before. Thanks for bringing that to our attention. Well, and just the collaboration too, right? From a team perspective and working on different matters, people come into your office. I see it, right? You're next to me. So I see people coming into your office, you going into other people's offices, we getting together in a conference room. To me, that sort of, it helps the creative process, I should say, and the teamwork and coming up with ideas and strategies. Definitely. And you sort of build that team chemistry. I know that's sort of a cliche term, but it's it's true. By working together in person, there's sort of a component that's hard to explain, but the ideas sort of flow a little bit better than Mm -hmm. if you're just sitting on Zoom or whatever it may be. Sometimes you don't really feel like unmuting to make a comment or ask a question or whatever, but being in person face-to-face, it changes things a bit. Right. You may not feel like, uh, you know what, it's okay. I'll just talk about it with somebody else later on a Zoom, like you said, or instead of sitting in a room, you may just 
offer up your comment. Right. Yeah. I don't think it has to be all the time. I certainly, obviously we are, you know, fairly flexible on remote work and people do take advantage of that here. But I do think there is a need and a benefit to having in person, certainly for people who are younger, less experienced, but I think overall, and I think it helps from a client's perspective. But then again, I'm just old man. Yeah. I've been practicing for a long time. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm glad to hear that. I guess you sort of feel that benefit as well. Part of that's just me personally. I tend to have a lot of questions, so it's easier to be a good. person to ask them. But I think it's a job-to-job, person-to-person type issue. I mean, there's some jobs that you can do, legal or otherwise, where that FaceTime isn't as important. Mm-hmm. But at least with this type of work that I'm doing, and the people I'm working with, it just is something that I value and I think is useful. And I would say that being curious, especially as a lawyer, especially as a young lawyer, not judgmental, is be curious, not judgmental. Be curious, thank you. That's uh, your yes, quote Walt Whitman. Day, right? yes. Not my quote, I mean <laughs> right. Walt Whitman. But you're throwing around Walt, Walt Whitman. I am. I, Walt uh, Whitman. Walt Whitman. There you go. I'm so, well read. Yes, you are. <laughs> that book fell on him, right? It did. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, being curious, I think, is a key to success as a young lawyer. You want to learn, and asking questions is a way to get there. And when you're working on a project or as a team, failure to ask a question can lead to tragic results. I mean, you take this tiniest detour in research or writing a memo based on your understanding of a fact or the application of a law can steer you right off track. And a lot of times, those are the types of questions that are trivial. They might be important to the research, but may not be worth a call to someone else or you asking that question outside of a structured meeting. So I think because a lot of people will say, yeah, but you can counteract the team dynamics. I forgot the term you use, the team dynamics by scheduling, you know, virtual meetings on a regular basis and build that dynamic that way. But mm, I'm not so sure about that. Yeah. And Going back to one point that you made about asking questions is sometimes not asking the question could be problematic for many reasons. And I've always been one to take the approach of, I'd rather be the person who asks too many questions than be the person who doesn't ask the question and something bad happens. Agreed. And by the way, we support that. We'd rather you ask too many questions. There's no too many questions, right? Much easier to answer a silly question than it is to correct a silly mistake. There's no silly questions. Exactly. Yes. None. Right? Yeah. I mean, in this environment, to me, I mean, if you keep asking the same question, then we'll right. have to right. you know, That's a different <laughs> story. But if you're asking questions, that's okay. I mean, you're supposed to be learning. I mean, that's the idea here. And if, as you guys have just been discussing, if you fail to ask the question and you make an assumption and you move forward on that assumption, that can have devastating impact on the client so shifting gears now, going back, are you uh, somebody who always wanted to be a lawyer? How'd you end up? Uh, no, definitely no? not. I mean, yes and no. And I'll, I'll explain. When I was really young, I was obsessed with like CSI and shows like that. And I wanted to be a criminal defense attorney oh. for whatever reason. I always sort of had that goal, like, oh, I want to be a lawyer. Never actually pursued it thoughtfully, at least. I went to college originally to be a golf pro. That yeah, we're going to put a pin in that. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a minute. That didn't work out, obviously. And I was sort of just at a, a fork in the road. And it's like, okay, what now? This is sort of what I've been focused on for the past however many years, not doing this anymore. What am I going to try to do now? 
And I guess I reverted back to what did I want to do when I was younger? Oh, I wanted to be an attorney. So I said, all right, you know, I'm going to start working towards prepping for the LSAT and I'm going to apply to law school and I'm going to go do that. And what happened to criminal? What happened to CSI for you? Uh, criminal side? Yeah, I just sort of, I some of my favorite classes in law school were criminal procedure and substantive criminal law, but as a practice, it just didn't quite appeal to me the same way that it did, at least in TV land. TV land. Right. You watch Matlock. I'll date myself, right? Right. Perry Mason, Matlock. Yeah. All those shows. So you went to school to be a golf pro. Right. What was your, your handicap, your best handicap? So important. By the way, not that I have any idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> Very I do important know that term. Point to clarify. Not a PGA Tour pro. I was never that good, but a teaching pro at a golf course. Right. Just give okay. lessons, PGA pro, not PGA Tour pro. Very important distinction because I'm nowhere near that good. But mm-hmm. I mean... But you're good. I've, I mean, it's okay. You could say. Not as much anymore. It's just not so as much time. Yeah, when you got to work. To and, practice yeah, exactly. and things. But I, you know, I've got down close. I don't want to say scratch, but fairly close. Mm-hmm. You know, low, single digit handicap. It's like Jeff. So when you say to become a golf pro, you're being like, a golf pro in a golf course or like a teacher? So I don't know what the number is now, but when I was looking into different colleges, there were 19 schools that had this major, it's professional golf management. And you basically go, you graduate with your degree and Mm -hmm. your PGA certification as a PGA professional. So you go through that program and it's the business side. It's some schools offer it in like a turf grass course management Mm -hmm. perspective, some resort and hospitality, but they all share a common concentration on certain golf-specific elements. And you basically graduate and they place you at a course and you're an assistant pro at whatever course you get placed at. But it's not, I mean, the actual golf and the teaching of the golf is not really what they focus on, right? It's more about the management and the operations? It's a little bit of both. I mean, it's not golf swing. You're you're not going, they're not making you better at golf necessarily. It's, right. you know, they how to run a golf shop. Uh, just <coughs> general. business of golf. It's the yeah. business. The operations of right. a club, or right? I club mean, repair, yeah. club building, mm-hmm. you know, basically just all those facets of That's it. That's cool. That's like interesting. It. And you said it didn't work out. What way did it not work out? It basically took my hobby, something that I really enjoyed, that I did on my own free will for lack of a better way to put it, and turned it into something that I was forced to do. Mm. I had to do it when I was told for as long as I was told to, and it took away sort of my passion wow. for golf. And I, oh, that's interesting. After I switched out of that program and went down the law school path, I probably didn't pick up a club for three, four years because mm-hmm. I was just, I was so burnt out. And then I came back to it around the end of my first year of law school, and I was terrible. Practice, 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 because I had more time and I got pretty decent again. And now I'm not so good again. <laughs> you go out to the Biltmore? No, I haven't recently. Oh, when you were in, in school at UM? No, I would go over to Crandon on Crandon? Okay, yeah. Every day studying for the bar, I'd go out there at like 6.30 in the morning before bar prep. And I'd hit balls for like an hour, go home and then bar prep. The only nice part of the day. That's funny. Yeah. So interesting that you're... What you loved, the sport that you loved to play when it became more of a career and a focus, the love of the game was sort of sapped out, sounds like. Right. And then there's sort of just the truth of what the job actually entails is 
you're at the golf course, you barely get to play. If you talk to any teaching pro or mm-hmm. at any course, you're like, oh, mm-hmm. when's the last time you play? Oh, I haven't played at all lately. You know, they don't really get the opportunity to play. Some might, but for the most part, no. Right. Weekends, holidays, you're working. If you're not fortunate enough to be somewhere like Miami where you can work year round, you need to make arrangements somewhere else for the winter months. Mm-hmm. It's just a lot to it and very little of what I actually enjoyed about golfing. And now he has that joy for the practice of law, specifically here at Bass Amarillo. Well, it's not CSI, but it does. Well, it can be. He does get to do some investigative work. A lot of it. Yes. It's true. How are you liking it? Great. I mean, it's the type of work that I wanted to do ever since I did that first externship with Judge Isikoff. I was never purely, oh, I need to do chapter 11 restructuring work precisely. It was just sort of the whole bankruptcy sphere, like I said earlier, all adversary proceedings, creditor claims, things like that. And I feel like I've gotten pieces of each of those things. So it's been good so far. The director officer side of it too. That was mostly new to me. I haven't had much experience with that prior to coming here. And I've actually really enjoyed doing that type of work so far as well. Well, we're glad you found it your way here. And um, it's only just the beginning. So it re- literally is. Maybe yeah, we'll yeah, check right. back with him in a few years or <laughs> that's right. Or decades. <laughs> that's right. And that's then right. uh, on episode, we're almost, I think we're probably around episode 90. So maybe in episode 900, we can come Done that many podcasts? <laughs> Something like that. That's right. Wow. 85 or 90. He's, he's a listener. You we're can tell. The, he's we're he's in a there. listener. I've listened oh, to a couple. I didn't realize there were that many. <laughs> he hasn't caught up. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Yes. Hunter, thanks for being here. Thanks, Hunter. Thank you for Uh, having me. Nelson, thank you. If you like this episode, please give us a five-star review and follow the show. Share the show with your friends and family. And if you have any questions for Brett Amron, you can contact him directly or me, but more likely Brett. Thank you, Nelson. Thank you. For more information on this show and other resources, visit fastamron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at Fast Amron.